We are today, uh, we are in Genesis chapter 39. We began the chapter last week. We resumed our study in the life of uh, the story of Joseph, I should say, uh, after uh, taking the kind of the break in chapter 38 where we looked at the story of Judah and Tamar. We're back now on the story of Joseph and we're kind of at the beginning of that story as he arrives in Egypt. And last week we looked at his uh, his being sold into the household of Potiphar as a slave. And we considered uh, uh, those first ten verses or so of chapter 39. So why don't you take a look at those verses uh, before we pick up the story today, we're going to pick up the story in verse 11 and uh, hopefully get down through the rest of the chapter. But uh, before we do that, look at those first 10 verses in chapter 39 and kind of think back. What are the things that we talked about last week? What are some of the things that stick out in your mind or things that were important to you that we talked about last week? I'm I thought about it a lot this week God was with Joseph and blessed Potiphar. Also, I read in the sign of God being with a person that we tend to want to be all the blessings are for us, the blessings for somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Pardon? Yeah, and Potiphar saw that. Potiphar saw what was happening. He. He saw the Lord was doing. I don't know if it, you know. I don't know that if Potiphar became a believer or anything. There's no indication of anything like that. But but uh, that really is a lesson for us. If our lives become a become a, a channel or a pipeline for the blessing of God to others, they see that, they notice that, and they appreciate that. And uh, uh, that's one of the things that leads people to Christ. The scriptures tell us that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. So when other people experience God's kindness through our lives, then it's one of the things that can influence them uh, towards the kingdom. Well, that particular point, like Mike said, that's been actually that's been important to me for years and years, and reminded again last week to emphasize that. And for me, Joseph, in that specific way, is kind of like the the gold standard, or maybe we should say the God standard. <laughs> that he is. I wanted to be able to have that influence mm-hmm. and, and have people around me blessed, and I know that I fall so far short, but that's been the goal for years and years as I've seen and been very encouraged by Joseph's story. Yeah. Um, wanting to be like that. Uh, so. Great. What else? You pointed out that as good as what Joseph might have it, he was still blessed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's important for us to realize because I, I think maybe in light of some of the things we just said, we might get the impression that, well, the spiritual way to look at things is to think, well, you know, I should just be happy here as a slave. Well, it wasn't that he was happy being a slave. And as the story proceeds, he ends up in prison. We're going to see the the steps that he takes to try to remedy his situation. So it's it's not that he's content to be a slave or he's content to be a prisoner but it's but it's rather that he he recognizes that in this position he can still be what God wants him to be and and given the opportunity he would he would choose to do something else uh, but but the Lord isn't allowing him that option at this point so so yeah that's a good good point it's he's he's still a slave 
And the narrator makes a point of that. And one of the ways we notice that is he tells us that he's in Potiphar's house at the beginning in verse 1, and then through the entire rest of the story, Potiphar's never mentioned by name. He's always referred to as Joseph's master. So it's like he's emphasizing over and over again that Joseph is under this man's authority and is, and is a slave to this man. What else? His integrity, yeah, yeah. And it and it really strikes me how easily when we're tempted, particularly in the moral area I think of, because that's the example that we have here in the story of Joseph, how easy it is when we're tempted in the moral area to get so focused on the temptation that we lose sight of the whole issue of our integrity. And and what we're willing, you know, how many men have been willing to sacrifice their marriages and their relationships with their children and and their position and status within the community all for just a few moments of of uh, of sexual pleasure you know and i'm sure this, the same thing is true for could be said uh, about many women as well what people are willing to sacrifice and, and i think oftentimes it's because they don't stop and think about it what strikes me about joseph is he stopped and thought about it but oftentimes when the temptation hits i think uh, men and women both just kind of charge ahead without without stopping to think. What are the what are the costs of this? What is this? If I, if I choose to do this, what's going to be the impact of this on my family, on my children, on my wife, on my on my job, on my relationship with others, on my influence in other people's lives? And you just kind of block all that out and just charge ahead. Uh, and of course, that's exactly what Satan wants to happen. And what strikes me about Joseph is that he didn't do that. He actually did stop and think. This is a price to pay if I do this. And it's going to be a price of my personal integrity. It's going to be a price of my relationship with Potiphar. And most importantly, it's going to be sin in the eyes of God. So, yeah. Tremendous lessons from Joseph. Anything else? Maybe in this case, but you wonder if he would give an in if he could mess up the whole scheme. Yeah, I, yeah, I, that that kind of, that question came to my mind. Yeah, it certainly makes us wonder, you know. And I, I and I don't really address it in today's lesson because we don't have an answer to that. But that certainly is a question that I thought about this week. I thought, what if Joseph had given in? Uh, you know, would he have forfeited? You know, would God have had to work through some other means uh, to save uh, to save Israel? Uh, but thankfully, we don't have to find that out because <laughs> Joseph is uh, Joseph is just this remarkably upstanding young man. And one of the things that strikes me too is is just that that he does this when he's so young. You know, the guy is obviously probably in his twenties at this point, early twenties, and and I just. You know, I, I, I wonder how many of us at that age had that kind of presence of mind uh, that Joseph had. And, and I do think it's, I, we don't know what, we don't know what, 
were the factors in his life that prepared him for that moment of temptation. We kind of have to speculate a little bit on that. But clearly there's been a foundation laid in the life of Joseph that, pre- Joseph that prepares him for that. And we're going to think a little bit more about that today. So, day after day after day. How did he handle that? How did he handle this daily temptation that was thrown at him? What did he do in order to cope with that? Okay, he tried to avoid her. There's a lesson there, isn't there? You know, if we... If we play with fire, we're going to get burnt. And so Joseph makes a point of trying to avoid being in a situation where he's alone with a woman. And of course, that can't always be avoided in his circumstance because he's a slave and he has certain responsibilities. And so we'll see, uh, we'll see that happen today. But, but, but he's, he's taking every possible step he can take within, within the parameters of his responsibilities and his obligations. He's taking every possible step he can take to avoid being placed in a situation where he might yield to temptation or where he might have to face that temptation. And we're reminded of what Paul tells Timothy when he says, flee also youthful lusts. And, and that's what we see Joseph doing. Like five times in these passages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and the rest of Genesis, the rest of Genesis, from this point forward, yeah, yeah. He's mentioned five times the name Yahweh, which is the name for the covenant God of Israel. The name Yahweh is mentioned five times in this passage, uh, in those ten verses. Actually, we looked at last week, it's mentioned once a couple, one or two more times in the passage we look at today. But it's only mentioned three more times in the entire book of Genesis. And so there's tremendous emphasis. We'll talk some more about that today. There's a tremendous emphasis on, on this idea of God as the covenant God in this whole situation with Joseph. Uh, and that God is keeping his covenant promises to Joseph and to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. So, uh, so that is an important emphasis of the chapter. Well, let's pick it up then in uh, verse 11. And uh, as, as, uh, as David just mentioned, we're at the, where we finished last week at, in, chapter, in verse 10, uh, it, he's encountering this daily temptation that's put in front of him. Uh, and then circumstances kind of take a turn for the worse in verse 11. He says, Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to make, us, to make sport of us. He came in to lie with me and I screamed. And when he heard, I raised my voice and screamed. He left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of me. And I raised my voice and screamed. And he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now, when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. 
So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners are, were confined. And, and he was there in the jail, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Well, he starts out and uh, actually it's not the start. We're kind of in the middle of the story, but the passage that we're looking at today, he starts out. And he refers to a specific day. He says, now it happened on this day or one day. Okay. And, and the thing that strikes me about that is, is, is Joseph is just kind of going along and, you know, just carrying out his responsibilities and doing his job and resisting temptation. And he's just, he's, you know, and he's, in, in one sense, we could say he's kind of got life under control. Okay, now he is a slave. He's, you know, it's not a not, not a desirable situation at all. Uh, but within his context, he's done well, and he's managing day by day just to fulfill his duties and fulfill his obligations, and just to get along from day to day. Okay, and then all of a sudden we have this day. And for whatever reasons, the circumstances change. And on this day, Joseph's life is just turned on its head. Now, that's not the first time he's experienced that. But this is one of those days. This is a watershed day in Joseph's life. It's a watershed day in redemptive history. <laughs> and it, it, it seems to me kind of like the narrator is just trying to, to point out that there are some days that we encounter that just absolutely turn things around in our lives. You ever had a day like that? You know, you just get up and it's a normal day and you just you, you know, get up and you put your pants on one leg at a time and you go to work and you, you know, and it's just kind of life is just going on. It's been going on this way for months or years for you and it's just very normal. And then something happens and your whole life is just thrown into chaos. Your whole life is just turned upside down and your head is spinning and you're going, where did this come from and why did this happen? And, and, and how do I cope and how do I deal with this? I try not to have those. Yeah, we all try not to have them. But we do periodically have those days in our lives, don't we? You know, I could think back in my life and I'm sure you can think back in your life. Of, of days just like that, you know, when just suddenly something happens, a car accident, a relationship goes haywire, uh, an illness strikes or a death or, you know, just any number of things that just absolutely throw us. And the thing that the thing that strikes me uh, the thing that strikes me about Joseph is that when, when he confronted this day, this very unique, special day, special in a negative way, when he faces this very 
life-altering day, he's obviously ready for it. Now, when I say he's ready for it, I don't mean by that that he just breezes through it like it's no big deal. I think that I think that's a Pollyanna, almost psychotic way to look at life. If we can just breeze through crises like Joseph's experiencing here and just go, oh, it's no big deal because God's in charge. I don't think that's how Joseph dealt with it. Okay. But what does strike me is that he goes through this day and he counters the circumstances of this day and he gets on the other side of this particular day and what does Joseph do? He remains faithful to God. However hard, however difficult, however traumatic this experience was for Joseph, somehow he manages to keep faithful to God as the days go forward. And, and I asked myself, as I was just referring to think, talking about just a few minutes ago, I asked myself, what are, what, are the things in, what are the things in Joseph's life that prepared him for this? Because we're all going to encounter days like that. And so I'd kind of like to know, what are, what are the, some of the things that I can do in my life so that when I have a day like Joseph has here, it doesn't just absolutely throw me for a loop. Now, we don't have a lot of clues in Scripture as to what things Joseph had built into his life, either built himself or had others build into his life. About the only thing I know we have that could have prepared him for this day is what? Okay, but his father's relationship with God was a little strange and he didn't do a very good job of teaching the other boys. <laughs> so I, I agree. I think there's some of that, but it's not real on the surface. But there is something that it really is on the surface in Joseph's life that helped preparing for this. What was it? The promises from God. The promises from God. He had two dreams. Now, I don't know... I don't know how much Joseph, when you know, when he's being carried off to prison in this story that we're looking at today, I don't know how much he was thinking about those dreams. But I do think that Joseph has built into his life a habit of trusting God, no matter what happens. And I think part of that has been the result is that the result of him having gotten word from God in those dreams that he really latched onto and he really believed, so that. As we read about later in, in the Psalms, the verse we've already talked about several times, that until his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. He had this word in his life, in his heart, and he had built a habit of trusting God and believing God. And so, I, like I say, I don't know if he's specifically thinking uh, when he's being, you know, when he's being accused by Potiphar's wife, and when he's being uh, thrown into the jail and put into chains, I don't know if at that particular moment he was consciously thinking of the dreams. But I do think that there is a there is a character of Joseph that he has latched on to God's promises, and that whatever happens, he believes in the goodness and the presence of God. Okay. So, so he has this day like we all have when everything 
goes haywire and he goes into the house uh, just doing his duties and it's not a situation he would have chosen because we see he's already made a habit of trying to avoid these type of situations. But he goes into the house and there's nobody else there but Potiphar's wife and himself. And, and we know the story. We now know how it unfolds. It says she caught him uh, by his cloak or his garment, meaning his outer garment that he's wearing. She catches him by it. And, and, uh, and Joseph, true to his character, refuses to yield to temptation. And he flees and he slithers out of his, out of his cloak and flees away and goes outside. Okay. Now, it is kind of interesting. You know, we could, we could probably spend some time here doing a psychoanalysis of Potiphar's wife. You know, she's kind of an interesting character. Uh, in a very perverted sort of way. But it is interesting that it uses the word caught here. He, she caught his garment because that is a word that is used, uh, among other ways it's used, it's used later uh, in the law and in the Old Testament to, to refer to a man taking a woman by violence, <laughs> raping a woman. Okay, so... So in one sense, we're getting this picture of Potiphar's wife that she's almost... She's almost masculine in her aggressiveness here. See, she's really going after this, okay? And 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 it's 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 a it's a picture of a woman whose whose character and whose nature have become completely perverted by her lust and by her uh, uh, by her promiscuity. She's just she's she's so perverted that she's actually represented here with a term that's typically used of a of a of how a man takes a woman by force okay so she she grabs his garment and she clings to it and and he slithers out of it and and runs away as we said and so now we have the second time in the life life of Joseph where his garments serve as a metaphor of what's happening in his life. When's the first time? Okay, at Dotham when he went to went to check on his brothers at Dotham and they catch him, uh, they take him, they strip him of his coat of many colors, as we oftentimes call it. They strip him of his coat of many colors and they throw him in the pit. And when we talked about that part of the story, I'm. I, I mentioned to you that in that this that that Joseph's clothing becomes kind of a theme through his story. Okay, so we have that issue of his cloak being stripped from him, and he's th- thrown into the pit. And the reason the cloak is stripped from him is because the cloak represents his position of favor with his father. Right? The brothers are jealous. They're resentful of his of his. Uh, position with his father within the family and the stripping of the cloak and the throwing him into the pit the stripping of the cloak is emblematic of him being violently against his will removed from his position humiliated and shamed and thrown into a pit and then ultimately sold into slavery okay now we have the same situation happening again. Yeah. It's hard for me to understand how anybody can go through what Joseph went through at Dotham 
just once in their life and come out okay. But here it happens all over again. He's stripped of his cloak and the stripping of his cloak or the stripping of his garment once again represents him being uh, violently against his will, deprived of his status, deprived of his position of honor and recognition. Now, he is still a slave, but within that context, he's achieved this position of honor and trust as he had with his father earlier, and now that's being stripped or removed from him. And he's being, in one sense, thrown back into the pit. Now, it says here it was a jail, and the word there is is a word that can be translated house, so we don't know exactly what kind of a structure it was. Joseph later himself refers to it as a house, but then within the same verse, he also calls it a dungeon so uh, or a pit. So in one sense, what we see happening with Joseph here and, and, and the stripping of the garments is, is a metaphor for that. What we see is Joseph is once again being thrown back in the pit. So here we have a guy who's been thrown in the pit once, and he claws his way out or he's delivered out of that pit and then he's just thrown back into it. And so she strips him of his garment and he flees and you think, oh good, he got away. But he's left the garment and then she uses the garment as evidence against him. And of course, here again, we have a, we have a repetition of the earlier story. The garment is used in the first case, the garment is used to deceive Jacob in regard to Joseph. Now the garment is used to deceive jo- uh, Potiphar in relationship to Joseph. Okay, so, so she concocts this story. And uh, what is the nature of this story that she concocts? What, is it, what are the kind of things she's saying there? Profiling. She's what? She's profiling. Profiling. Please elaborate. Profiling the Hebrews. Okay. Hebrews okay. Okay. Uh, first, she 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 brings in the men of the household. She tells them the story right away. Okay, that's so they can kind of sort of act as witnesses. And then later, when her husband comes home, but you'll notice in both cases she mentions that he's a Hebrew. Clearly, what she is trying to do is she's trying to incite racist animosities. We actually know, in fact, from later in the story, we'll see this, that the Egyptians already have a racial, uh, uh, have a a spirit of racism regarding the Hebrews and they wouldn't eat with them. It was loathsome to eat with the Hebrews. And and so what she's apparently doing here, she's just kind of playing on this racism. Here's this Hebrew who's come into this environment and he's been elevated to this high position and you've got these Egyptians around and they 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 think pretty lowly of the Hebrews to start with, and this guy maybe is kind of the exception, uh, but but she just goes right to that. She just plays on it. She's obviously obviously wanting to stir up hatred towards Joseph, not not just to retaliate to, against him, but but she really wants him hated. Okay. Pardon? Yeah, and in fact, I actually. Uh, I, I actually have the quote there. Uh, let me see. Where, uh, by uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, shoot, I don't see it here. But but the quote goes something like, uh, uh, shoot, I, 
there's more to it than that. But at any rate, uh, I can't find it here in my notes right now. But, but that's the idea. What we got here is hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Okay. Here's a woman who's, whose whole image of herself is based in, in these superficial, tawdry ways of building one's self-esteem. And here's a man of character who just says, I ain't buying it. <laughs> I ain't buying it. I don't care how beautiful you are. What's at stake here are issues of integrity and loyalty and sin. And I'm not buying this. And this just actually crushes her ego. Just crushes her ego. Forgive me for psychoanalyzing here. But it crushes her ego and she is going to retaliate. And she is bent on destroying Joseph. So she incites in... in she incites in her, uh, her other, the men of the household, as well as in her husband, she tries to incite this racism. What else, is, what else does she appear to be doing in this story that she tells the men of the household? Uh, in, in addition, pardon? Okay, she's blaming her husband. Okay, she's, she's kind of pointing the finger at her husband and saying, look, he, he brought this guy And she says the same thing to him. He says, listen, it's your fault. You brought this guy in. Okay. And what else? We've got these other men of the household, and she's talking to these other men of the household. She says it's not just her, it's making it sport of us. Okay. Okay. You think you know those guys that you've done Yeah, yeah. And, and it's like he's, what she's trying to do is she's trying to incite jealousy. Now, I don't think you probably would have to incite much. You have a bunch of slaves, and one guy comes in, he's, you know, late teens, early 20s, and pretty soon he's exalted to be top dog in the house. You know, you can imagine the kind of political machinations that are going on in that environment. And uh, for any of you who have ever worked in any kind of an environment, multiple people in a secular, maybe even in a religious environment, those kind of jealousies arise pretty quickly. And I think she's just playing on the jealousy. He's an easy target. He is an easy target. And, and she's, in, she's just inciting that. She's just trying to arouse that. Okay. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Uh, I know, in some sense, I was thinking about what Rick's pointing out. I don't think it matters to those, the guys who would be left out, they would say, well, Joseph's in our position. We should be in. And this woman's beautiful. I would like to be, you know, I yeah. had that opportunity or whatever. So there's a lot of levels of here. Now, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and actually, and actually, what's interesting is that uh, is that our narrator points that out. Uh, I want I want to point out to you uh, in uh, in verse uh, seventeen, she starts to speak to her husband, and she says, "Then, then she spoke to him with these words." The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me and made sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Uh, you'll notice you notice there's an emphasis there in verse 17 on her words. You see that it says, then she spoke to him with these words. And it's like what the narrator is trying to just help us remember here is this is just it's just all it's what she says it's her words there's no reality to it 
there's no reality to it. So like like Charles was just pointing out, you know, it's not the it's not the uh, truthfulness of the charge. It's the uh, truthfulness of the of offense, whatever. It's the it's the seriousness of the charge. OK, so she is she's just making this. Charge, but it's all just her words. And she speaks these words to her husband. OK, but there's no reality in it. But she had uh, I thought it was interesting that she kept the same stage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. 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 She. She obviously. She's a pretty sharp lady. You got to hand it to her. She's got this figured out. How she's going to play this. Yeah. 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 So she's got her evidence. She's got her witnesses now because she calls these guys in right after it happens, and she's got her evidence. But it's all a concocted story. And I'm reminded of a couple times in the Proverbs where it tells us that the that life and death are in the power of the tongue. And those who live by it will eat its fruit. And, of course, I don't know what fruit ultimately Potiphar's wife had to eat as a result of her sin here. But, but this, this story is a real lesson to us about what we can do with our words. Maybe you have been in a position of having somebody lie about you and destroy your reputation by their words. It's a pretty painful thing. If you've ever had it happen, you know it's a very painful thing, right? Well, don't ever forget that the next time you're tempted to misrepresent somebody else's character. Don't ever forget how painful it was to you to be slandered when you're tempted to slander another. It's real easy to do. It's real easy to fall into that trap because it's, you know, it's kind of an ego trip if I can kind of paint another person low so that I appear to be high. Whatever. You know, we look at that and we go, well, I would never do what she did, but, well, maybe I would never do exactly what she did, but it's very tempting to do things like that, to exploit a situation, to misrepresent the character of another, to take the garment, if you will, and kind of just adjust the evidence a little bit so it really makes the other person look poorly. I think that more in this story, I don't know, could have been something like that. It could be that the bystanding dies. I think it's really easy when somebody who's opposed to you or you don't like gets into trouble. And you didn't start to lie, but you, you stand by and don't correct it. Like Good that. point. I was thinking like today, you know, the politicians and the media, somebody makes an accusation against somebody in the media just jumps all over without even seeing if it's true and just repeats it. And and either repeat it or fail to come to their defense. Yeah, or don't yeah. don't come up and say, Well that's you know, yeah. don't tell the truth. Yeah. 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 I wonder if he got a little bit nervous and 
morning she woke up and read in the newspaper that he was the prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to reflect on that a little bit today if we get to that point. We're going we're to talk about that a little bit because it's actually more profound even than that. But, at uh, any rate, uh, so it's so then so then she tells Potiphar her story, and that's kind of how it how it says it there. He tells she tells him his story. The emphasis is on it's a story. This isn't real. This isn't true. This is just how she represents. It. What's Potiphar's response? What happens in Potiphar when this, he hears this? He's angry. Okay. His, in some cases, you see it, and the scripture is very explicit. Somebody's anger burned against. Somebody in particular, and it doesn't say that here. Okay. So you kind of wonder. I'm sure you're going to address that. Okay. Yeah, I am going to address that. I have it right here on my notes. It says angry at what or towards who. Okay. It doesn't say who he's angry towards, but in the natural flow of the story, what do you assume? He's angry at Joseph. Okay. I mean, that's how we would normally read it. Okay. He's angry at Joseph. Why would we be inclined to think that it's not towards Joseph that he's angry? He didn't cut his play. He didn't kill him instantly. He just put him in jail. Okay. He just put him in jail. Okay. I mean, well, no yeah. sweat. You know, just put him in jail. I'm just he kidding. Also knows his life better than we do. Okay. Okay. All right. Now, now we read all that in in between the lines, right? Because it does jump out to us that Joseph is not executed here. Okay. And, of course, in the 21st century, we wouldn't execute a man for doing a thing like that. But in Egypt, they tended to. Okay. Uh, even under the Old Testament law, a man who committed adultery uh, was, uh, was oftentimes executed. So, so, within the culture, and even under Old Testament law, which, of course, the Egyptians aren't living by, but, even, but within the culture... Uh, a, a common uh, penalty for adultery or attempted rape in a situation like this, particularly of a wife of a very high official, uh, the consequences would be death. And it is pretty significant here that Joseph is not executed, that he doesn't uh, receive capital punishment for this purported crime that he has supposedly committed. Okay, And so, uh, so that kind of jumps out at us and it makes us wonder... You know, why did Potiphar not have Joseph just executed? Okay. Well, a very common interpretation of that and understanding of that is what's already been proposed, that that Potiphar just wasn't absolutely sure that his wife was telling the truth. And that he knew his wife, he knew her character, uh, he may have been suspicious of her, and, uh, but, of course, he has to do something because she's got the so-called evidence. So he has to do something. So he has uh, Joseph placed in prison. Okay. Well, and, and that's another thing, too. This guy's lost the best slave he ever had. Okay, this guy's running his house and he doesn't have to think about anything. You know, now he's going to have to go back to balancing the books. Okay, and, and that would be enough. That would be enough to make me mad if I had to go back to balancing the books instead of having my wife do them. You know, so so at any rate, there are a number of possible explanations, but there is one certain explanation for why Joseph was not executed. What is that? Pardon? God didn't allow it. The presence of God. 
Okay. So I don't, I don't know what Potiphar knew or what Potiphar thought or, you know, we don't have any answer to that. It doesn't tell us why he was angry. I assume he was angry at Joseph. I, I, I think that's implied in the text, but it doesn't say that. Uh, and so a lot of those things are up for grabs. Well, one thing's not up for grabs in this thing. God is present with Joseph. And just as God spared Joseph's life at Dotham, God has now spared his life again. However, he did that through whatever mechanism, through whatever individuals, however he did it, God has spared Joseph's life. Now, I want you to notice something that says, uh, uh, Now when his master heard the words of his wife, verse 19, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me. His anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Oh, did I mention to you? And he was there in jail. You notice that? He says it again. Why does he do that? Why does he say, he put him in jail. Oh, by the way, this is the jail where, you know, and he was there in jail. Well, of course he's there in jail. You just put him there. Why does the narrator make a point of that? Well, maybe it'll help you understand if you just kind of erase the verse distinctions here, okay? Remember, the verse distinctions are not inspired. They're put in there to help us find our way around in the Bible. But if we eliminate the, the, uh, the verse numbers there and we read the verse, it says, where the king's prisoners were confined and he was there in jail, but the Lord was with Joseph. It's like Joseph, like the narrator is saying, okay, Joseph's in jail, folks. But God is with Joseph. It's just that big, you know, and it happens so oftentimes in Scripture. It's just that big, you know, red flashing light that says, but God. But God. And it changes everything, doesn't it? Then the rest of the verse goes kind of quizzical because it says, the Lord with Joseph and extended kindness. Wait a minute. You would think if God were extending kindness, he would not be in jail. That's what we talked about last week. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, as we talked about last week, success is being a blessing to others. And for Joseph, ultimately, to be a to be a success in what God has planned and purposed for his life, he's got to be in jail. But notice, not just any jail. Which jail? The king's jail. Why is that important? Yeah, because of the cupbearer and the baker that are coming. Okay, So, you know, if he'd just been thrown in any jail... It wouldn't have been, you know, he wouldn't have met the cupbearer and the baker. I assume it was nicer. I assume it was nicer, but I don't know that. So, yeah. This was Yes. 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 really didn't lose sight of Yes. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yes. This is Potiphar's jail. In fact, some people speculate that the jail is actually in Potiphar's house. You know, so John, Potiphar's in control of this whole situation. Okay. 
there's actually an interesting movie out entitled Joseph. Uh, ben Kingsley uh, plays the role of Potiphar in the movie. If you ever get a chance to watch it, it's a fairly new movie. It's in the last several years. It's a, it's a great representation of the story of Joseph. It's, it's pretty close to Scripture. Not exactly, but it's pretty close to Scripture, and I love it. Ben Kingsley does a great, uh, great job as... Uh, as Potiphar in that story, but it, that kind of comes out how Potiphar plays a, a role all the way through this whole story. But whether or not that's actually true, I don't know. And, and forgive the little ad there for the movie on the side. But but he uh, so he, he the emphasis of the verse the narrator is giving us here is that yes, Joseph's in jail, but God. And then he says he extended loving kindness to him or he extended kindnesses to him. And the specific kindness, one of the specific kindnesses that he extended to him was what? He gave him favor with the chief jailer. Okay. Now, I want to go back to that word kindnesses there. Because the word there is the Hebrew word hesed. We've talked about that word before. It's a word that can be, and sometimes in Scripture is translated covenant faithfulness. It's translated many different ways. It's a very common word. Translated very in many different ways. But we've talked about how this word, hesed, this idea of covenant, God's covenant faithfulness, has come up over and over again through the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so as I read this, that God extended kindnesses to Joseph... Maybe it would help us understand Joseph's situation better if we read the verse. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended covenant faithfulness to him and gave him favor in the eyes of the chief jailer. Because then we begin to understand that the good things that happen in Joseph's life, there are some, (laughs) like having favor with the chief jailer, is not just some random, arbitrary good thing that happens in his life. But it's something that's happened in his life because the covenant God, Yahweh, which is the name that's used in that verse, because Yahweh is keeping his covenant promises with Joseph. And even perhaps more importantly, God is keeping his covenant promises with Abraham. So Joseph, Joseph is experiencing the kindnesses of God that Joseph is experiencing in his life. He's experiencing because God is a covenant keeping God. And he is in the business of keeping his covenant. And so as bleak as the situation looks in Joseph's life, God is causing things to happen in Joseph's life, even in prison, that are a result of him being a covenant-keeping God who is keeping his covenant. And the kindnesses that God is extending to him are a fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and God's promises to Joseph. You wonder, I always wonder what Joseph said if he was allowed to say anything. I always think about that every time I go through there. It's allowed to say, hey, this is the truth. 
I'm not sure if he was allowed to, but I'm pretty sure he did. And there's actually a reason why I say that. Uh, we discover later, looking back on when he was thrown into the pit, that he was crying from the pit. He was calling out from the pit. So, so we know that when he was in the pit, he was calling out. Uh, uh, but not only that, when we get into the story about the cupbearer that we'll get into next week, he specifically asked the cupbearer to convey to others outside, I'm here unjustly. I, I really have no doubt that Joseph pled his innocence. It doesn't mention that, but I have no doubt that he did. Yeah. It would be hard for Potiphar you know, trust him in every little thing he knew that I was totally honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do think that's a factor, and it would be one reason why we might suspect that Potiphar did not believe his wife. Yeah. Well, going back to this issue of the kindnesses of God in the life of Joseph, if, if. If the kindness of God that are happening in the life of Joseph are the, are the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, that puts Joseph's experience in a whole different context, doesn't it? Now, how about the kindnesses of God that you experience in your life? Are they not Still, those hesed, those covenant faithfulnesses of God, are they not the fulfillment of God's promises to you? Well, there are times in my life, and I don't know about you, but there are times in my life when I don't really think I deserve all that. When I'm really struggling and, you know, and I've been kind of a failure and, and I'm still begging, pleading with God to be kind to me and show me a kindness and I realize I really haven't done anything to deserve it. If I cannot believe that God will be faithful to his promises to me, can I not at least that he'll be, believe that he'll be faithful to his promises to Abraham? And I am one of the recipients of those promises to Abraham. That God is obligated to me. And He's obligated to you because He made a promise to Abraham. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so I can expect that whether I find myself enslaved or imprisoned, that I will encounter God's covenant faithfulness because He's made a covenant with me. And He's promised me things. And He's going to fulfill those promises no matter what the outer circumstances look like. He's going to fulfill those promises. Excuse me. And if not for my sake... For Abraham's sake. Well, just briefly then, the question comes to my mind what was Joseph thinking? 
because here we have a guy who's, who's really been dealt a raw deal, not just once, but twice. And now he finds himself in prison. And yet here in prison, he still acts with this remarkable, outstanding character. So he demonstrates his trustworthiness and he demonstrates even his gifts, his administrative gifts. And, and they get noticed. And, and, and so the chief jailer then promotes him to be honcho over everything. Okay? And I ask him myself, how does, what's going on in the mind of Joseph that after he's thrown in prison, he can still act that way? Because I don't know how I'd act if I were in Joseph's place, but it'd be real easy once I got thrown in prison to go, okay, now this is the second time around, and this is a bum deal, and I'm fed up. Didn't do. So about this time you start going, it ain't worth it. As soon as I start focusing on my circumstances, I lose my motivation. Right? I lose my motivation to act righteously and faithfully and diligently. And if I, if I were Joseph, it would have been very easy at this point to go, hey, it ain't worth it. Why try and do what's right? Because every time I try to do what's right, this is where I end up. So I'm done trying to do what's right. And I go over in the corner of my jail cell and sit there and sulk until God woke up and realized that he'd given me a raw deal. Right? Yeah, we don't. We don't. But, but it is clear he didn't do it for long because, because we see him acting in a way that he wouldn't act if that's the way he was thinking. So the question is, what was Joseph thinking? Well... And I agree with Mike. Uh, we can't assume that he didn't struggle with those areas. But it's clear that at some point, and at some point fairly soon, his focus becomes what? The faithfulness, the faithfulness of God, the promises of God. Until his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. And so... One of the most remarkable things to me about Joseph is that in that prison cell, after all that he's gone through, that he can still make the promises of God his focus. That doesn't mean that he didn't think about his unfortunate circumstances. It doesn't mean that they didn't chafe. That doesn't mean that he didn't suffer. That doesn't mean that he wasn't through, didn't go through great turmoil. What it does mean is that, is that his focus was not on that. His focus was that God is faithful and God has given me promises and I'm going to believe those promises and I'm going to walk by faith. Well, just lastly, then I want to point out something to you. Going back to the whole thing about the garments. Joseph's garments are stripped from him. He is humiliated. He's demeaned. He's... He's thrown into the pit and then he's thrown into prison. He's punished for things he did not do. He is humiliated. Who is he like? He's like Christ, isn't he? Joseph is 
if you will, in this, a type of Christ whose garments were stripped off of him, who was punished for things he did not do, who was crucified on a cross. And we just kind of say that nowadays. We have no sense today of the utter shame that that involved. Uh, uh, Crucifixion, it was very common and it was used across the board with many parts of the population, but it was most prominently used with slaves and it was called the slave's death. And it was the most demeaning, humiliating, degrading way you could end a person's life. And he who was equal with God, who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Why does Paul say that? Because that's the most demeaning, humiliating death that Christ could suffer. And he went through that. He was stripped of his garments. He was punished for sins he did not commit. And he was, and he was if you will, overthrown from his position and humiliated and shamed for what purpose? Joseph went through all of this so that he could save the sons of Israel, the ones who threw him in the pit. But not only to save the sons of Israel, but to save the people of Egypt, who included Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. And not only to save the Egyptians and Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, but to save all the nations around Egypt. That's what Joseph went through in order to do that. The Lord Jesus is our second Joseph. Okay? Next week we'll go on with the story.